Well, it's good to hang out with you guys this weekend. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I can tell you this. I'm pretty sure that if Zach doesn't choose his wife over the goat, his life's going to change, right? Anybody agree with me? Hey, greetings from uh, Grace Church Norton Campus. It's good to be with you. I want to do something right out of the gate. Uh, I want you to grab your Bibles, and I want you to open them to the book of John, chapter 8. If you're using a mobile device, get that out, lay it in your lap. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the chairs. You can take that with you. It's our gift to you. If you're not sure how to get there, your Bible's split into two parts. There's the first part, which is the Old Testament. Second part, New Testament. John would be in the second part of your Bible. Chapter 8, just lay that in your lap. We're going to get there in a minute. As you turn there, I've been here seven years, and when I came to Grace Church, I didn't realize how preoccupied the pastors of Grace Church were with how good-looking they are, right? Anybody with me on that? I mean, it's amazing, these guys. I've even heard your campus pastor, our senior pastor, say to you guys how lucky you are to see him on high definition, how sexy he is. You ever heard that? Yeah? Yeah, I need to get some things off my chest because it's starting to get personal. See, as we're going around to different campuses, here's what's happening. These guys are coming down to the Norton campus and they're speaking to our campus and they're standing up, giving their little line, saying how good looking they are. And here's what they're saying. They're saying, we're really good looking and I'm sorry that your pastor is so ugly down here, right? It's getting personal. So I want to get something off my chest. My name's Dan. I'm a little older than those guys. I'm bald. And obviously, I'm not much to look at, but apparently, I'm the only Grace Church pastor that owns a mirror. That's what I figured out. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I love the opportunity to be a part of Grace Church. Love it. <clears throat> uh, last week, I was at Medina campus. They just opened up their new auditorium. Incredible to see what God's doing there, doing phenomenal things. Last night, our Barberton campus met for their fifth Saturday in a row, and so we're seeing that thing launch and seeing God do some neat things there. Really, really excited about that. God is changing lives as a result of the gospel and as a result of what he's doing in and through Grace Church, which makes me really excited about this series we're in, right? I don't know, maybe you haven't been here to be a part of. Let me catch you up to speed. We're doing a series called My Life Changed When, and all we're saying is this, is that you have a story and I have a story. Your story is different than my story, but we all have a story. Our stories are unique. And here's what we know about our stories. They're gifts. God gives us our story as a gift. In fact, the first week, Pastor Jeff shared Ephesians chapter 2 with us that says this, we're God's workmanship. The original word that's used when it was originally written is we're literally God's poema. It's fascinating to me. We're his literary masterpiece that he gives us our story to somehow impact us, but not just to impact us, not just to change us, but our story is something he gives to us so that it can be an impact and a help to others. That's why we want you to share your story. And so all of you in the room probably can look back over your life at poignant, significant moments in your life that you could look at and say, that was a my life changed moment for me. Usually it's, it's big moments, not always, but usually it's big moments in our life. For instance, most of you maybe could look back at, at moments in your life that are moments of celebration, right? They're my life change moments. I know I can look at a ton of those kind of moments. For me, one of those moments, 25 years. 25 years ago, I married my best friend. My life changed. I've been married to Jennifer for 25 years, and my life changed the moment I said I do to her. You see, a lot of you can look at moments of celebration, but it's not just the moments of celebration, Right? Sometimes our my life change moment is the unplanned transitions in our life and all of us face and we go through different seasons of life, changes in life. 
For me, that happened seven years ago when I uprooted my family and we moved to Akron, Ohio. My life changed due to an unplanned transition. But if we're honest this morning, if we're honest, we can look at moments of celebration, we can look at moments of transition, but most of us can look back over our life and we can see my life change moments that happened during moments of pain, moments of loss, moments of betrayal, moments of hurt, moments that we wish we didn't have to walk through, but they changed our life. You see, for me, that happened about 14 years ago. When all of a sudden depression hit me like a Mack truck, I'd never been depressed in my life. I didn't even understand people that were depressed. I was the most optimistic person you could ever meet. Depression hit me like a Mack truck, changed me. My life changed that moment. Changed the way I see the world, see people. It changed the way I pastor. See, you can look at moments in your life that are my life changed moments. And you know this, that your celebrations, they're not coincidental, right? Your pain's not pointless. Your, your transitions aren't trivial. These my life change moments are things that God gives you uniquely. And so we're just simply saying, would you share your story? Upload it and share your story so that others could be helped by it. This morning, I want to share a my life change moment. Happened when I was in the fourth grade. I'll never forget it. Left a lasting impression on me. You would have no reason to know this, but I grew up in a religious home. In fact, a step further than that, I grew up in the home of a preacher. My dad was a preacher. That meant this. We went to church a lot. You see, here's how it rolled in my home. Maybe some of you grew up in homes like this. I don't know. But we went to church Sunday morning, right? And so you had a service like this called a worship service, a worship gathering, something like that. But in my home, in the church we grew up in, after the worship gathering, you went to something they called Sunday school, Sunday school was where you went with age-specific classes, and so you met for another hour with your age group. In my home, that wasn't enough, though. In our church, it didn't stop there. You went Sunday morning, Sunday school, and then you came back Sunday night, right? But it wasn't enough in my home. We went twice Sunday morning, once Sunday night, and then we went back on Wednesday night. And in my home church I grew up in, we didn't just go twice Sunday morning, once Sunday night, once on Wednesday night, but every other week on Monday night just for good measure. We got a lot of church in the fourth grade. I don't know why, but the Sunday school class that I was in wasn't just age-specific, it was gender-specific. So that meant I was in a Sunday school class with all boys, and our class met up in the corner in the balcony. I don't know, maybe to keep us away from everybody, I'm not sure, but we met up there, fourth grade boys, and we had a Sunday school teacher whose name was Jim. Now, I don't know how to say this politely in church, but Jim was kind of like sort of, I'll just say he was boring, right? He was really, really hard to listen to. We hated Sunday school, I'm just going to tell you, we hated Sunday school. I would look for anything I could do to get out of having to go to Sunday school with Jim, In the fourth grade, something very, very important happened in the middle of the year for me. See, I'd asked my mom and dad for some cutting-edge technology. Cutting-edge, now this is way before Xbox and PlayStation, guys, okay? But what I wanted more than anything else in the fourth grade was electronic football game. And so my mom and dad for Christmas bought me some cutting-edge technology. I got an electronic football game. Look, something like we'll throw on the screens. How many have ever seen that before? Raise your hand. Y'all are old. That's what that means, okay? (laughs) 
And so for those of you who have no idea what this is, there's a little screen and there's dashes, not these digital look like people kind of things, right? And what your goal was is to take your dash and get away from the other dashes. And if you could get clear to the end, you scored a touchdown. I was in heaven, guys. I played seasons with that thing. I'd play playoff, Super Bowl. I'd play that thing. My imagination would go wild. I loved my electronic football game. So in the fourth grade, I knew two things. You know what I knew? Here's what I knew. In the fourth grade, I knew that I absolutely loved electronic football, and I hated Sunday school. (laughs) And so a plan was hatched. That's all it took for me to hatch a plan, and my plan went something like this. You go down to the bottom floor of our church building, and down at the base of the steps was a classroom nobody wanted to use. It was dark, dingy. There was no window in there. Turn the lights out, pitch black in that room. It was the perfect place for me to hatch my plan because at 10:30 every Sunday I'd take my little electronic football game look this way look that way I'd hop in that room shut the door turn the light out mute my game crawl underneath of the table and I had heavenly Sunday school alternative for an hour <laughs> guys it was unbelievable I thought why didn't I think of this sooner man this was awesome I'd sit under that table and I would play my little electronic football game all through Sunday school I would do it week after week I loved Sunday school that way right It was wonderful. I thought, man, I have the perfect plan until all of a sudden it caught me by surprise. I didn't see it coming. It got complicated. It beyond that, guys, it got downright exhausting for me to carry out my heavenly Sunday school alternative. I didn't realize how complicated it would be to navigate this little world I had created, but all of a sudden it got really complex. I'd run into my teacher he said, Danny, we miss you in Sunday school. I'd lie and say, I miss you too, right? Where are you at? Well, as it would happen, my dad's the preacher and I'm running errands for him during the 1030 hour. I can't make it to Sunday school. He bought it. I'd go home and I'd sit across the table from my dad and uh, he would say, Danny, how was Sunday school? And I'm like, oh man, I didn't see this coming. And I'd look at my dad square in the face and I would say, it was great but I knew I had to do something to get him off my trail. And so to distract him, what I'd do, i say, but Jimmy was awful in class today, dad. And we'd talk about Jimmy. Guys, I was in deep. I was in too deep to work my way out until the Sunday had all changed for me. My life changed one Sunday. I'll never forget it. I went down to my little heavenly Sunday school spot underneath my table, pitch black. If I remember right, it was third and eight on the 25. I was getting ready to score. And all of a sudden, some unwelcome light entered into my heavenly little dark world. The door cracked open. I was frozen. I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. That door opened a little further, and all of a sudden, I saw a pair of shoes standing in that doorway. I studied those shoes. I thought I recognized those shoes. Black wingtip shoes. Those are my daddy's shoes. I remember thinking to myself, What in the world is my dad doing in this room at 1030? Shouldn't he be in Sunday school is what I thought to myself, right? All of a sudden he said, Danny, are you in here? Guys, I just need to be real honest with you. I thought for one brief second, I'm going to throw him off and say no, but I caught myself, right? (laughs) I caught myself. I was frozen. I couldn't breathe. I could not breathe. I was paralyzed. I thought if my dad ever finds out I'm underneath this table and I've been lying to him all this time, my world as I know it is going to end. He said, Danny, are you in there? 
I thought, oh, please, oh, please, just shut the door and leave. And then I heard him say Danny a third time, but this time he was no longer standing at the door. My dad had gone from standing at the door to stooping under the table. And he said, Danny, I know you're in here. I know you've been in here the whole time. It was at that moment that I realized my dad was not looking for information. He was looking for confession. He knew I was in there the whole time and that my dad had come into that room and opened the door to stoop under that table to save me from me. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because my guess is in a room this size with this many people that there's some of you that are exhausted. There's some of you that are exhausted because you have a secret that you're keeping and at first it was a heavenly little world that you have created, but now you found out it's gotten complex and complicated. You didn't realize it was going to be this hard to have to navigate it and you're pretty sure if somebody finds out your world as you know it is going to be over. If they ever figure out the site you've been visiting, the text you've been sending, the relationship you've been cultivating, the business transactions you've been carrying on, you're pretty sure your life as you know it's going to be over. And you're exhausted trying to cover your tracks. There's others of you that maybe you're here today and you're paralyzed, you're frozen because you have this dark little world that you've been carrying on all of a sudden, you didn't see it coming, you weren't prepared for the moment, but a little unwelcome light has entered into your dark world and you're afraid, you're frozen, you're paralyzed in your secret and you're pretty sure that when they figure out what you've been up to, your life's over as you know it. And then, chances are in a room this size, there's a whole bunch of us that have mastered the art of throwing people off and covering our secret. Oh, we, no one would ever guess. We mask it in morality, we cover it in spirituality, and we really throw people off, particularly with our opinions and convictions, and we get them to all of a sudden begin to think about those people over there doing all of that bad stuff, while all the while we harbor and nurture a secret in our own life. See, what's fascinating is we find out things pretty quick about secrets, and that is this. Secrets are easy to hide. Then they become really, really exhausting to navigate. And then our brain tells us this, then they're impossible to expose. Because the moment I expose them will be the end of life as I know it. And if that's you this morning, I'm so glad that you're here. Because in the Bible, in the Bible, in the part of the Bible you have laid open in your lap is a story of a woman whose secret was exposed in the most dramatic and violent of ways. And what she thought was going to be the last day of her life actually became her, my life changed moment and was the beginning of life for her. Grab your Bibles, let's read her story and make some observations. John chapter 8 is where her story is found. In your Bible, it might be written in different font. Let me just explain it this way. A lot of scholars aren't sure where to put this. They're pretty convinced this happened in the life of Jesus and they know that it illustrates the teachings of Jesus and it's a powerful picture of the important message of the gospel of Jesus. More importantly than that, it will provide hope for us today. Verse two, here's what it says. At dawn, he, that's Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Here's what's going on. Jesus is just having a Bible study. He's just teaching a Bible study and he's sitting 
while he's having this Bible study. Now, would you do me a favor this morning? Can we, as we read this story, pay attention to the postures of Jesus? So he's sitting there teaching a Bible study when all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Bible study is interrupted in the most dramatic of fashions. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman, don't miss this, caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. You see what's going on? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that's the respected religious leaders. They interrupt Jesus' Bible study, but they have somebody with them. It's a woman that literally the Bible says this woman was caught in the act of adultery. If I'm reading this right, here's what's going on. Don't miss this. They drug her out of bed. The only problem was she wasn't in bed with her husband. And they made her stand right in front of Jesus in the middle of his Bible study. You feel the moment? Can you imagine? Exposed, vulnerable, humiliated, frazzled. Verse four, these religious leaders said to Jesus, teacher, this woman, she was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Verse 6, they just wanted to use this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Here's what's going on. The details of her secret are laid out. They had already picked out the stones to execute her. And further than that, they want to trap Jesus in the question. And you know what's worse yet? Don't miss this. They're right. They knew their Bible. Leviticus chapter 20. The Bible he's teaching from, they knew it. Jesus' response is fascinating. Do you see what he does? Jesus hears what they're saying, and he goes from sitting to stooping. It says Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. I don't know about you, but I sure would love to know what he was writing in the ground. The Bible says they wouldn't leave him alone. They kept questioning him, and when they kept on questioning him, it says he straightened up. And he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're right. You're right. She's guilty. I just have one request. Let the one who is here who has no sin be the first one to throw a stone. And then you see what it says? Again, he stooped down and started to write on the ground. The sitting Jesus stooped, then he straightened up and stood up, and then he went back to stooping. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Here's what happens. All of a sudden, the executing mob becomes the exiting mob, and all you can hear is stones dropping in a pile. So if I'm reading this right, the only people that are left are the woman whose private secret was now public gossip and the one who had their credentials in the resume to execute judgment. The only one in the whole group who had no sin and the woman whose sin was now exposed for everybody to see. Look what happens. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
What a fascinating story. He's like, where are the people that are going to condemn you? I don't know. They're not here. They all left. But you're still here, Jesus. And the only one who had the authority and the resume and the credential to condemn her stood up and said, neither do I. Now go leave your life of sin. What a fascinating story. It ought to create a little bit of angst in us, guys. I mean, there, there's a part of us is like, how in the world could Jesus say that to her? She's caught red-handed, man. She's caught in the act of adultery. How could he say that? I mean, is, is Jesus just kind of soft on sin? Is Jesus just one of those guys kind of like, oh, I'll just turn a blind eye to it this time. Just don't do it again. And on your way you go. I mean, is that who Jesus is? Not on your life. Not a chance. I think that those that would have been witnessing this scene would have been baffled, been confused, been like, what's up? I can't believe he responded like this because in the scene, the only one, the only one who had the authority to throw the book at her, the only one who had the credentials to execute judgment on her, instead he stooped. He stooped. Which is an incredible picture of God's story. See, I don't know, you may be here this morning and maybe somebody drug you here. I don't know. Maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend nagged you till you came. Maybe your wife or your husband kept after you, and you came, and they drug you here, and you came not really wanting to be here, and you know you got secrets, and you know if those secrets ever got exposed, you're pretty sure that what you understand about God is that he's a God who will throw the book at you. You're pretty sure that what you understand about church is that that's a place where they're going to throw stones at you. And yet what Jesus illustrates and pictures in this story is that God, Jesus, God with skin on, is the only one in the story who had the right to throw the book at her, had the right to throw stones at her, instead he stooped. What an incredible picture of what John 3 says. Many of you know what John 3 says. It's a very popular passage of Scripture. John 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 is just as important. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Listen to me, guys. God's story, the story called the gospel, is of a God who, don't miss this, stooped. It's of a God who stooped. He stooped to save us from us. He stooped to save us from all the secret sin that no one else even knows about. And we're pretty sure if anyone ever found out about, our life would be over as we know it. What's fascinating about the woman in this story is what she thought was gonna be the last day of her life actually was the beginning of life for her. That's fascinating to me. And it's important for some of you. Because you might be here and you might be one of those people, you're exhausted trying to navigate your secret. This story's for you because there's hope, there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's freedom. There's some of you that are paralyzed because a little light's come into your dark world and this story is for you because this can be a my life change moment for you. Whereas you thought it might be the worst day of your life, it might be the most liberating day of your life. So you're saying, how, Dan? How in the world can that be a my life change moment for me? Three things I want you to write down, then we'll be done. Three things, A, B, C. First is this, I gotta start by agreeing with what the stooping Jesus already knows. I gotta start by agreeing with what the stooping Jesus already knows. Can we get something straight in the story? These guys that drug this woman into Jesus' Bible study were not informing him of anything. 
They weren't informing him. They, I, th- I think they drug this woman into Jesus' Bible study as though to say, hey, Jesus, guess what we found? We need to tell you and inform you this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I think he already knew. You know why I think that? Because Jesus is God with skin on. He's God in the flesh. And here's what Hebrews 4 says. Nothing, and nothing in the Bible means this in the original. Nothing. That's what it means. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. I think they drug that woman in there to inform Jesus and they were waiting for Jesus, the Bible study teacher, to throw the book at her. And they were informing him of nothing and yet he is a God who stoops anyways. He already knows. Did you know that this morning? God's stooping. And he already knows what's going on in your life. You've done a good job keeping everybody else out. No one else knows. You're navigating it. You're exhausted doing it. And he's a God who stoops. He said, I already know. And maybe for some of you this morning, he's calling your name. He's saying, hey, Dan, are you in there? He's not looking for information. It's not what he's looking for. He's saying, hey, I already see the danger you're flirting with. I see, I know no one else does. I see the sites you're going to, the texts that you're sending, the relationship you're cultivating. I see the business transactions that you're carrying on, that you're covering up. I see the secret life that you're living. I see the addiction that you've been able to keep everyone else from being able to spot. I already see it. I know no one else does. And I love you. And I stooped for you. You see, here's the deal, guys. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is not soft on sin. I don't want to mumble. Jesus is not soft on sin. To say Jesus is soft on sin would be to minimize and erase the power and the message of the cross. Where Jesus died to pay a debt that I owed that he did not owe, but I could not pay. I like to think of it this way. Just go with me here. I was doing a little study on this story. And the New Testament originally was written in Greek. You can forget that. But the Greek word that says he stooped and was writing can be translated he was drawing pictures. I like to think that way. I'm very pictorial. And I like to think, what if Jesus stooped and was drawing a picture of a cross as these guys were badgering him about this woman? You know why I like that picture? Because the only way he could stand and look at her and say, neither do I condemn you, is because he looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you because I am going to be condemned for you. Neither do I throw the book at you. You know why? Because I'm going to have the book thrown at me for you. Neither will I stand and throw stones at you. You know why? Because yes, The secret that's been exposed is sin, and I'm going to go to a cross and die for you. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Powerful, powerful passage says, but he, that's Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. Guys, that's where freedom, healing, and forgiveness is found. It begins by agreeing with what the stooping God already knows. He came, he stooped, he died for even the stuff we're covering up no one else knows about. You ever think about this? Those guys with malicious intent drug this woman right in the middle of Jesus' Bible study. And they drug her to the best possible place in front of the best possible person they could have drug her. They weren't meaning well, don't get me wrong. But they brought her right into the presence of where she could find freedom and healing and forgiveness for what she had probably spent a lot of time covering up. You see, why that's good news is somebody might have drugged you here and maybe you have a concept of God that he's a God that's ready to throw the book at you. He's a God ready to throw rocks at you. And I want to tell you the story of God called the gospel is a story about a God who stooped. He already knows. He already knows. I know. I I get it. No one else does. I get that. He knows. And he's not throwing the book at you. And he's not throwing stones at you. He's saying, I came to save you from you. And the way I'm going to do that is simply by dying on the cross for all the stuff that you have somehow managed to keep hidden in a closet. Now, here's what's interesting in the story. The stooping Jesus went from stooping and then he stood. And he looked at this lady and says, I don't condemn you, now go. And, and I want you to leave your life of sin. He made a declaration to her. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. Don't miss this. God stooped. They nailed him to a cross. They put him in a tomb. The story goes on to say three days later, he rose again. That is really, really, really good news, isn't it? Here's why it's good news. Because at the cross, Jesus wrote the check. But the fact that he rose again means the check did not bounce. And because the check didn't bounce, he has the authority to say what the check goes for. He has the authority to say forgiveness is yours. He has the authority to say now righteousness is available. He has the authority to say you can be forgiven and free. Here's how Romans 8 puts it. Just look at this on the screen. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus Because you belong to Jesus, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. This is so important, guys. Here's all I was saying. If I'll trust what the stooping God already knows, if I'll believe in Jesus, that he is the one who can save me from our sin, if I'll trust the stooping Savior, then I can live the rest of my life with the confidence of what the standing Lord declares to be true. I want you to write it this way. The second step, I need to agree with what the stooping Savior already knows, and I need to believe what the standing Jesus declares. Here's the deal, that if I'll trust Jesus as my stooping Savior, the one who stooped for me, he says, if you'll trust me as the stooping Savior, then you are forgiven. Quit trying to earn your forgiveness. He said, you are my child, Quit trying to achieve a place in my family. He's saying, you are secure in my love. Nothing can separate you from my love. Quit living your life afraid that something is going to put that in jeopardy. 
You see, here's how it rolls. He said to this woman, he said, I want you to go and sin no more. What was Jesus saying to her? I don't know if you're thinking about this stuff. What was he saying to her? Was he saying, hey, go try really hard not to do that again? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, I want you to go live the rest of your life in response to the verdict I just gave you. And the verdict is this, I don't condemn you. There is no condemnation. You see, here's what happens sometimes. And some of you may be able to relate to this. Some of us are like, yeah, I'm in this prison of guilt. I'm so glad there's a stooping God. And so we go from this prison of guilt and we, we trust Jesus as our Savior. But for some of us, not all, some of us, we go from a prison of guilt right into a prison of grit. And we live the rest of our Christian lives saying, oh, I'm gonna somehow earn God's favor and keep his love and whatever. And what Jesus is saying, no, no, I want you to live not to get a verdict from me, but I want you to live from the verdict you have from me. That it's not guilt nor grit, it's the path of grace where there's freedom, there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's joy. Powerful, powerful picture of the gospel. Usually, if, if I were to be honest, usually that's where I hear the story in. We could end it there, right? When I've heard it taught, that's where I hear it end. The woman gets all the press. And we could end it there, and you might be like, man, that, that, that's a great story for people who are really struggling with some deep secrets that they've been keeping. And man, that gives them hope, and that gives them something to, 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 to really hang on to. But here, here's, here's what causes problems for me in that. She's not the only one in the story. Did you notice that? Like she, she ain't the only one in the story. There's more people in the story. There's this whole group of guys with stones in their hands in the story. And what's fascinating is, it's not just that she's not the only one in the story, but she's not the only one. Now remember this, she's not the only one in the story with a secret. With one sweeping statement, Jesus exposes all of the secrets that their stones were hiding. You see, these cats had walked in and the stones in their hands were simply covering and hiding the secrets that were in their heart. Can we just get real for a minute? Fact of the matter is, we all have secrets. Secret ambitions, secret anger, secret jealousy, secret lust. I was reading these last couple weeks, somebody said that if all the thoughts all the thoughts of a man were somehow written on his forehead, he'd never take his hat off. That might be true. But we get really, really good at covering them up. Particularly if we're somebody who would say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. We get good. Here's how we do it. We mask our secrets in morality. We cover them in spirituality. We get really busy doing a lot of activity so that no one can delve in deeper. And here's what happens over time. Unfortunately, we get really good at distracting people by becoming convicted and opinionated. Well, you know, those people over there and those people over there, and I can't believe Hollywood this and culture this. And so we get our stones. And it's an easy way to distract people from the secrets that are happening here. And you know what? You know what? If we're honest, we're every bit as much paralyzed in a prison as the woman. It's fascinating. How in the world do you and I experience freedom? I want you to write this down. Freedom happens when I confess the secret sin my stones are hiding. That's where freedom begins. That's where healing begins. And here's the deal. Confession, this is so important. 
confession is not the same thing as getting caught. You know how I know that? Because these cats in the story got caught, and yet only one person, if I'm reading the story, only one person stayed in the place with the person who could provide healing. They got caught, dropped their rocks, and left. They weren't humble enough to stay in the one place with the one person who could provide healing for what it was they were harboring. You see, freedom comes when all of a sudden I agree with the stooping God, what he already knows, and I call it what he calls it, and I believe that he stooped to die in my place. And then I believe what the standing Jesus declares. Can I ask you a question? Then I'm done. Where do you find yourself in the story this morning? Where do you find yourself? You find yourself in there? Maybe you're somebody who came in here and you had a thought of God where like, he's a God ready to throw the book at me. He's ready to throw rocks at me. I don't know, but I got this secret. There's no way I can let anybody know. And maybe you had no idea that God was a God who stooped. And this morning, the place for you to begin is to start by agreeing with what he already knows. And he stooped and he stooped clear to a cross to die for all of that stuff. And the place for you to begin is to place your faith and trust in him. That's where forgiveness and freedom, you might be trying to work your way out of it. And I want to tell you something, that working your way out of it is not the pathway to freedom. It's just the pathway to another prison. And freedom this morning is found in agreeing with what the stooping God already knows. There may be a bunch of you in the room. I don't know. I don't know many of you, but maybe you found yourself in that, yeah, Dan, I've done that. I've, I've, I've jumped out of that prison of guilt, but now I'm in a prison of grit, and I'm trying to work my way into somebody's good favor. And this morning, what, where you need to be is to believe what the standing Jesus declares about you. He's like, you're forgiven. You're my child. Nothing's going to separate you. I want you to live in response to the verdict you have from me because of what I did for you. And I don't know, I, I don't know many of you, but maybe you're here and you came in with a pile full of rocks, I don't know. And, and you're scared because no one would guess that you're that person. No one would guess it this morning. And you're thinking to yourself, I, there's no way I could be that vulnerable and that transparent, and if I did... Uh, heaven only knows what people begin to think. And God, and here's the good part about my story. I had a father who stooped to save me from me, but you know something he never said to me? That's it, Dan, you're out of the family. Never said it. And you might be somebody carrying your pile of rocks and you're thinking, what's God gonna think if I all of a sudden begin to get real about the sin that my rocks are covering? And I can tell you this, you have a father who loves you and he wants to save you from you. So, Father, we come into your presence this morning. I count it a privilege to be able to share with my friends, many of whom I don't know. And Father, my prayer is this, is that this morning might be the first step to freedom from some of my friends. You might be here this morning, and maybe you've never, ever placed your faith and trust in the stooping God, in Jesus Christ, who died in your place. Guys, you can do that right there in your seat. He knows. He already knows all the stuff that you think no one else knows. And He died for you. He paid the price you can't pay. Right there in your seat, you can agree with what he already knows. Call it what he calls it. 
and place your faith and trust in the fact that Jesus died in your place. You might be here this morning and you're carrying rocks and the place to begin is to begin to drop those rocks, but don't leave without humbling yourself and agreeing with what that stooping Jesus says about the secret sin your stones are covering. God, my prayer is this, that as a result of this simple little story in Scripture, that the gospel would with power explode, ignite in our lives, in our hearts, and that freedom and healing and joy would be found. God, I pray that you would release us from the prisons that paralyze us so that we might be able to begin to experience life as you intended. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.